Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with an American conductor who won the Sir George Schulte Composition in 2004. Since then, he's held title positions in Switzerland, Germany, Norway and the Netherlands, and from 2023, he will be music director in two opera houses, one in Valencia and the other in Berlin. It's a great pleasure to welcome James Gaffigan. James, how lovely to see you, to meet you and to chat with you today. How are you? I'm great. Thank you very much for having me with you. Absolute pleasure. Uh, I know you've listened to a couple of episodes, so you know that I go right, right back to the beginning and I do my homework on Wikipedia. And I read that you've read music at New England Conservatory and went to Rice University, but I don't know what instruments you played uh, and I don't know how music came into your life. All I know is that you, your parents uh, on Wikipedia don't seem very musical, but they may well have done it as, in, as amateurs. Well, how did music first enter your world? Well, I mean... As young as I could remember, there was always music in the house. And I think my parents, they loved music, but they, not necessarily classical music, as we call it, you know, yeah. dead composers. And it was just basically <laughs> yeah. always music. My grandparents were very, they loved dancing. And I yeah. always remember that's one of my early, earliest memories, seeing my grandparents dance um, together. But yeah, there was a piano in my house. I think my mom wanted to try to learn by herself. Um, yeah. Uh, to play the piano and I think she learned a little bit of uh, how to read music but I just gravitated towards it I love the I kind of figured out what a triad was before I knew what a triad was I figured out what sounded sad what sounded happy but um, yeah just writing tunes on the piano and that was huh. kind of how that's what started uh, and did that manifest itself as composing uh, as well as playing the piano well, yeah I mean yeah, just it did, but I never treated, I never took composing very seriously. I tried, yeah. but it always sounded like just an awful version of whatever piece I was conducting. <laughs> um, yeah. But um, but from the beginning, yeah, I mean, I just, I had a, I had no desire to read music really in the beginning, and right. I just kind of loved writing music. And I played guitar by ear, and I played piano by ear in the beginning, and then my parents sent me to some piano lessons. I learned how to read music properly. And then some wind instruments came into my life because right. I wanted to play in a in the elementary school band. So clarinet uh, seemed like an obvious choice for whatever reason at the time. And then the great thing about the New York, you know, public school system is they gave you an instrument and they right. gave you reeds and they they taught you basically, and it was free. So yeah, I brought home a clarinet and then uh, and then it then I realized uh, well. My parents said, if you want to get a scholarship to college, you should probably play an instrument that nobody else plays. And so uh, the bassoon became my instrument. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, I I love the instrument itself. And the reed making was not the most <laughs> exciting thing in the world. But but I love the sound of the instrument. And it came quite naturally to me, except when I realized how much I loved this music, there was so little repertoire in it for me. And that, yeah. that was... Uh, very frustrating. Well, as somebody who's sort of a conducting career started conducting amateur orchestras, and I still conduct the CBSA Youth Orchestra, now nothing's changed, James, as I'm sure you're well aware. We're always scrabbling around for bassoons, for violas, yeah. <laughs> for double basses, Oboe, currently French, French horns. horns. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so nothing's changed. Um, uh, and yeah, as you said, you know, the bassoon repertoire, I'm sure, whilst it's gently expanding, it's nothing like as big as anything else. So your big focus will be bands and it will be orchestras, which is where I'm assuming you first encountered somebody holding a baton. Um, yeah. <laughs> where, uh, when did you first take your draft of stick poison, to use Hawk and Hardenberger's phrase? <laughs> <laughs> the good way of putting it. I, yeah. um, I, re I remember my my junior high school band director, his name was Barry Delman, and he played on Broadway. He played many different instruments. He was such a talented guy, and he he just had rhythm in his body. And I just right. remember that was my first image of a conductor. He had great rhythm. He had a great rhythmic integrity, and he he got this band to play together. and uh, And I just I love the excitement he stirred up. Right. Um, it wasn't until it wasn't until I went to high school, LaGuardia High School for, for Music and Art, which is behind Lincoln Center, very close to where I am right now. Um, and I remember getting tickets to the New York Philharmonic. Mm. Uh, we, we got free tickets from, from the New York Philharmonic. And 
I remember seeing Court Mazur, and I didn't quite understand what he was doing up there. It didn't seem to match what I was hearing. And I kind of had this, well, if that's what conducting is, well, that's, that's interesting, but I don't, I don't feel a connection to it at that point in my life. I think what really brought me to conducting was studying the music first, realizing that I wanted a bigger role, let's say in the, in the, in the performing, um, or let's say the rehearsal and performing process. And I fell in love with the score first. And then I started, then I started seeing videos of conductors. And of course, I love Kurt Mazur now and what he represented musically. But at the time, I just, I, it, wasn't, it wasn't the art of conducting that attracted me to conducting, the physicality of it. It was more just that I had the score in my hands and that yeah. I knew what everyone was doing. I mean, mm. That was kind of the most exciting thing. And then, and then later I discovered videos of Leonard Bernstein and Carlos Kleiber and Karian and and whoever, I mean, and then it, it became fascinating to me how physicality can create sound. And, mm, uh, mm, absolutely. Like it started from the sound itself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, uh, that, you know, you, 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 you were bound by what the, the, the score and had the love of the score. I was much the same. I love the score, but you know, I became a professional violinist with the CBSO at the age of 21 or so 21, 22. And so I would sit there and often inwardly criticize what these people were doing. And then at one point I thought, right. well, if you're going to inwardly criticize these people, maybe you ought to have a go at doing it yourself. Or, <laughs> or, I did a year of it at the conservatoire, but you know, but you know, I just, so I went off and started conducting amateur orchestras, as I said, you know, and discovered, well, actually what these people are doing uh, is, is harder than you think it is. And maybe right. you should be far less critical of them. And the, the longer I went on as a violinist, the far less, uh, much less critical of conductors I became uh, and a little bit, or a lot more supportive, <laughs> but yeah, I would imagine in my early twenties, I was a horrible person to conduct. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the next name that jumps off your biog is somebody who was mentioned in episode 24 uh, with Christian Machilaru, who also studied with Larry Ratcliffe at Rice University. Yes. Um, yeah. I remember him saying that Larry uh, was very, very detailed as a conducting teacher and sort of covered absolutely everything. What do you think the, are the things you rely on now from Larry from, from those years ago that, that still pop into your head on a regular basis? Well, many things. I mean, Larry was an extraordinary teacher, a selfless teacher uh, to me. And uh, Mr. Ratcliffe, in my mind, instilled a great work ethic. Uh. Um, the, the idea of being unprepared wasn't, wasn't an option or, yeah. or slightly prepared. It wasn't an option. And he was, extremely, he was extremely hard on me to the point where I actually think he was the only adult, like, to make me cry you know i remember <laughs> i he really he knew he knew all of my strengths and weaknesses and he knew when to push the buttons yeah. but he never did it in an evil way or but he was a he was an extraordinary teacher i, I don't know what else to say except for that he um he always made sure i was prepared he always made sure i had some kind of vision some kind of rehearsal plan and very methodical, but in the end, he always said, you have to let go. Mm. And that was interesting because I, he was a very controlling person and he rehearsed meticulously and he, he tuned chords and, and rehearsed ensemble and, and color and music. But in the end, letting go was very important. And he always said, you know, as much as you are like me, I want you to not be like me. You know, mm. I want you to be more free and taking risks. And yeah, I just, I, I, I look back with only great memories. I mean, he was tough on me and I deservedly so. I mean, he said, if I take you into my class, I expect X, Y, Z. And, and yeah, uh, and I, I took it very seriously because Rice, the Shepherd School of Music at Rice University was, in a, was an extraordinary place to be. And, you know, Christy Marcellaro was my concert master when I did Turn of the Screw. Oh, wow. He was yeah, the yeah. first violinist and he was just starting to conduct at that yeah. point. And uh, it was a great place. And, and, and Larry was... He played a real crucial role. I, I think I can honestly say I wouldn't be here today um, with this kind of career if it wasn't for Larry, because he, I was lazy. I was mm. inherently lazy. I loved music, but I was very lazy. And I realized I could get by on just a little bit of work and he wouldn't let that go. And that mm. it changed my life. 
Well, uh, I laughed when you said that, you know, he was possibly the only ad other adult who's made you cry as an adult. Uh, I laughed because, you know, my violin teacher was exactly the same and, and she did it oh. again. She pressed the, the in one lesson. It happened once in one lesson and she pressed the right buttons and she knew she was oh. pressing them. You know, but what it did, and I, I was, again, laughing when you said you were lazy, because I was exactly the same. Uh, I would still say I am in certain areas of my life now, not conducting, far from it. But, yeah, I was lazy, and she just pressed the right buttons, and it it changed me. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, and I think sometimes you need that, I don't know, kick up the backside or emotional... Yeah upheaval if it's just a what you know my it was a one three hour violin lesson she cleared her afternoon she knew she was going to do it there were no other appointments yeah. in her diary you know <laughs> uh, uh, and, and, and you know it, it 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 it's something that does it lasts doesn't it? It, it you know i still think about that today sometimes yeah. about you know if i'm thinking about being lazy And then on, and we've got a few names in the in coming up, um, names and places, places we've talked about before on this podcast, but uh, one particular name I, I don't think I remember ever reading or hearing. So you go to Aspen and also Tanglewood um, and uh, receive lessons or mentorship from David Zinman, and the name I don't know, Murray Sidlin. Um, what sort of conducting teacher or mentor was Murray Sidlin? I don't know anything about him. Well, David Zinman was the one that started the conducting program at Aspen, and he, yeah. he had this vision for this American Academy of Conducting. It was him and, I believe, Isaac Stern's original vision. Yeah. And Murray, Murray was already at Aspen, and uh, yeah, he was, just, he was one of the conducting teachers. And he, Murray uh, studied with Cella Badaki oh, um, wow. at that in, 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 in Siena, I believe it was. Mm. And, yeah, and Murray was kind of a colleague of David. He was one of the other conducting teachers, and he was with us every day and mm. in that conducting program. And were they ham and egging it, to use a golf term? Um, you know, one was doing one thing whilst <laughs> the other was doing the other? Or, you know, how did they approach it between the two of them? And it was mainly David Zinman. I mean, David yeah. Zinman was in charge. Murray was kind of around for tech technical checks and things like this when when David was conducting the other orchestra yeah. and and you know I think what Murray did best um, I don't know Murray very well but what what he did best was kind of the um, different types of concert um, programming like he yeah. would he had this amazing requiem program the Verdi requiem from uh, I think it was Theresienstadt where where this this or this orchestra and this concentration camp got together to perform the Verdi Requiem and mm. things like that. He got you to think very differently about these pieces of music, and he did educational projects and things like that. So that's that's how I remember Murray as as a teacher. Well, I mean, as a young conductor, you need somebody to do the things away from learning a score and waving your arms around. You know, you need somebody to talk about programming or even things, little things like rehearsal technique or rehearsal orders or, you know, some it's the, the nuts and boltsy stuff that sometimes you need somebody to help with. 04, yeah. you are the first prize winner of the George Schulte International Conducting Competition. What do you remember of that? Um, and what were the, what was the, the, did you have, was it one of those prize prizes where you know other than a large sum of cash you got so many engagements with orchestras what was the outcome yeah. of winning well the the most important thing to me was it was it was one of my first experiences in europe you yeah. know as a as a as anything as a visitor as a tourist and it was one of really one of my first visits to germany um it was many rounds so hmm. the first round was conducting an, an orchestra uh a I think Rhineland Faltz was, Ooh, yes. and then and yeah. then then the then the second and third round were with the um, in Frankfurt with the Museumsgesellschaft Orchestra, the Opera Orchestra, and the 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 panel was was a made up of really interesting people. It was um, an Italian conductor, it was a German conductor, and the head of the Lady Schulte was there, of course, yeah. too. And um, it was an amazing experience, I have to say. I mean, I'm not one to recommend competitions because it's very hard to compare talent at a young age and i uh, i like the idea that it's a platform and and it's it's a possibility to be seen yeah. by different people yeah um and it, and yeah i got some concerts with that particular orchestra again 
And um, it was a great experience because the culture of playing was so different than the Cleveland Orchestra, which was my only reference point at that yeah. time. I was assistant conductor um, of the Cleveland Orchestra and they played so differently and the priorities were so different. So that for me, rehearsing Strauss, for example, uh, Till Eulenspiegel, uh, was very interesting. I mean, I think it was my wake-up call to, to, to the European orchestra. Mm, mm. Well, uh, it's funny, when I, when I went through your Wikipedia page and also your biography on your website, I just noticed that things seem to run in three phases. I know it doesn't because I know you'll be guesting around the world. But, you know, if I could put it down into the three phases of uh, the US phase, where you're assistant at Cleveland, as you just said, from 03 to 06, and an associate at San Francisco from 06 to 09. Uh, and then the next thing is Europe, when you, you do 10 years from 11 to 21 at Lucerne, and also uh, Netherlands, uh, which we'll come to in a minute. But um, those early experiences in the US, phase one, as I will call it, um, you were uh, the music directors, Franz Velsa Most in Cleveland, and also MTT in San Francisco. What did you learn from those roles? I mean, obviously, being an associate is a much more involved role than being an assistant. But also in both places, you were you were running, uh, conducting other orchestras and doing sort of festivals. So, yeah. how uh, yeah. what, what did you learn from those two great music directors, and also from doing those jobs for six years? Well, first of all, you can't you can't choose two more different musicians than MTT and Franz Felsen most. It, mm. it was just opposite ends of the spectrum in so many ways. So I was really lucky to work with both of them. And Franz was the one to wake me up to opera yeah. and operatic repertoire and, and Bruckner and Schubert. Um, Michael Tilson Thomas got me to think very differently about music and what our role is in the community or the world as a conductor, as a leader of an organization. Mm -hmm. um, two very different things. In Cleveland, you know, when people ask me, well, who was your teacher? Um, I don't really say Larry Ratcliffe or David Zinman or Franz. I say the Cleveland Orchestra because the Cleveland Orchestra yeah. um, was filled with brilliant professional musicians who, for me, helped me and were very honest with me because I, I needed help. I mean, mm. you know, who else is going to tell me not to subdivide here or to look at the back of the first violin section? Don't look at me as a concertmaster, you know, um, when you're leading this particular phrase or this transition or, or you know, um, you're, it's much clearer when you do this instead of this. And, you know, you don't need to rehearse this necessarily. We'll, we'll get it tomorrow. Mm. We just, we kind of bring the attention to it. Things like that. And how to deal with people, you know, how to, yeah. I got to meet so many of these guys on tour and they're all so different and they all have different issues or problems or pluses about mm. them. And you get to, you get to, you see that these kind of, let's say these negative people um, or bitter orchestral musicians are bitter for a reason. Yes. And it might be something in their private lives, in life, it might be a colleague of theirs. It might be, a conductor that's made their lives miserable for the last 10 years. Yeah, yeah. There's so many different things. And, and I've realized that I have a soft spot for these, let's say what other conductors call problematic people or divas in the orchestra. I find them fascinating. And I, and I find it part of my role as a conductor to help them feel mm. better about their role in the orchestra. And I mean, I'm not a therapist, but I, but in the rehearsal process, I want people to feel as comfortable as possible. And I, I remember watching that, 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 dynamic in Cleveland when guest conductors would come through and say something one sentence could rub everyone the wrong way and they didn't even yeah. know it themselves yes but, you it's know, so you, true yeah. it's so true and you only learn by experiencing that and I that was one of the greatest things about being an assistant conductor of a major orchestra was just watching the guests come through and and taking what you taking things from each one of them you know mm -hmm. oh that worked I'm going to use that or oh my god I'll never say that to the orchestra um so it was a great experience. And yeah, San Francisco, more responsibilities as associate, less assisting. And the San Francisco Symphony is one of the most versatile orchestras on the planet. They could do anything. Mm. And I love that about them. It was a very different orchestra than Cleveland. Um, but I love their ability to switch on the dime, to go from Gershwin or jazz to, to a living composer, to Mozart or to Haydn. So I, I loved working with them. And I think we bonded over over the years. And when I go back to them, it's a, it's a great relationship. Yeah. 
it's uh, what you were talking about with Cleveland, and I'm sure you experienced with San Francisco, is the it's the years and years of man hours, woman hours, people hours of experience as well. You know, I'm, you started yeah. in Cleveland in 03. There were probably still players there, I'm guessing, who played under... From under, Zell. Yeah, from Zell, exactly. Yes, for sure. Uh, yeah. And, and, there and still the, is. Yeah, and, and there are others there who, as you've just said, would have had 10 years of a music director or, or somebody who drove them round the twist, um, round, the, round the bend, who made them mad. And, and it, all, it all impacts on, on what an orchestral player's experience is and, and also their viewpoint on orchestras. Not every player has the same, far from it. Um, no. you know, I, I, sat, I sat next to a guy for 10, 15 years of my career who hated one particular conductor. I'm not going to say who it was, but I mean, when he, when he left, he made sure he wasn't on the platform, you know, he yeah. took the week <laughs> off. Um, uh, yeah. But the rest of the time, he seemed a much happier person, but that, that one particular conductor drove him mad. Yes. Um, but, and you, and to have all of that and to learn all of that. And actually another frequent thing is the guest conductor thing, assistants watching guest conductors, fly or crash and it can be on this as you said one sentence um yeah yeah i watched you know my experiences were as a player you know um i would hear things you know the brass had suddenly taken against a conductor and i'd ask why why have you taken against <laughs> oh well he said this or he doesn't do that or she doesn't do this yeah. or whatever you know uh, yeah. and that was my learning ground Phase two, we're now heading to Europe, the European phase. And I'm going to list very briefly. So as I said, 10 years, chief conductor of the Lucerne Symphony Orchestra, principal guest at the Radio Philharmonic Orchestra in uh, the Netherlands uh, for 12 years, uh, four years principal guest or first guest at the Gertsenig Orchestra in Cologne. And in 2021, you became principal guest of the Trondheim Symphony Orchestra, an orchestra I know well. I know you said that when you did the Schulte competition, you encountered a European musicians for the first time, but what major differences do you still see um, when you fly across the Atlantic from US to Europe? Um, because, you know, you work equally, I'm sure, in both places now, but what, what, how did you cope originally uh, and then realise, well, actually, maybe I need to wear two different hats. I need to put my US hat on when I'm conducting in the US and Europe the other. Yeah, that's a very good that's a very good way of putting it. But I, what's happened over, I'd say, the last decade, I used to wear two hats. I used to yeah. have my American way and my European way. Yeah. But now I find myself happily right in the middle, and I think I can offer things in the U.S. that um, that let's say I couldn't at the beginning uh, yeah. of my life because of the experience I've had in Europe. So I'd say the biggest difference that I still find is is the first rehearsal, number one, actually. The first rehearsal, because an American orchestra and a British orchestra read very well. Mm. So they, when they play a Mahler symphony, the first rehearsal, it's already pretty damn good. Um, in Europe, it's kind of like, what are we playing today? And uh, <laughs> oh yeah, right. And you know, they, mm. they come prepared, but it's, it's not as tight. And, and, and the, the priorities are very musical in mm. Europe. And I know this is a very, you know, strange statement, but, but in the U S it's more about precision. At least that's what I first found and mm. kind of getting things together. But I think the more that life goes on, the more I realize the American orchestras want more of this musical information, not necessarily all the clarity anymore as, as much as let's say I used to think so. Mm. Um, but I find that um, I think there's a, there's a bigger culture for sound in Europe than the US, unfortunately. And I wish that would change. And I think it, it is to a certain degree, but I think that when we talk about orchestral transparency and style and things like that, I think a lot of Americans, orchestras would go, okay, yeah, well, it's fine. It's together and that's enough. <laughs> um, and that's, that's, that's a shame. And I think that it's, it's changing. And I, and I just love bringing what I've learned uh, from these European orchestras like the Bavarian Radio Symphony or Munich Philharmonic or, you know, whoever, um, bringing that kind of, ah, oh, they did that way. Or the Czech Philharmonic played this in this Dvorak Symphony, this, they did it this way. Okay, I've never heard that in the US. Mm. And there's a reason for that. And kind of bringing these ideas back and forth and also bringing the clarity and precision 
from the US and the UK to a German orchestra. I, I love that also. And I think they appreciate that too, once in a while, just the nitty gritty of just getting things together and, mm. and you know, start from the string in this passage from the, you know, things, things, basic concepts that for some reason have been lost, uh, you know, this, these housekeeping, as we call it, you know, um, mm. it's not always very romantic to do the housekeeping, but it needs to be done. That's, uh, it's an interesting, I mean, I, I totally agree with you, but it, what, what it leads to is an interesting debate on, and it's come up a couple of times on the podcast about how orchestras used to used to sound compared to how they sound now. It's interesting that you say you go to the Czech Philharmonic and they play Vorjak in a certain way. That's to be understood. Much the same as if you go to the LSO and you hear them play Elgar or whatever. But there was a point when you know we were growing up where I, you could put an LP on blind and you would know that it was the Chicago Symphony Orchestra or you would know yeah, that it was yeah. the Leningrad Symphony Orchestra. Yeah. Do you think that... Because of this, you know, cross fertilization across the, the oceans of, you know, maybe the pre precise US orchestras now want to talk about sound more, whereas the sound based orchestras in Europe maybe want to play more with more precision and together, that it's all becoming homogenized into one basic or sort of orchestral sound. And those really distinctive sounds are much less these days. Yeah, for sure. And it's there, it's good and bad. It's yeah. good because more orchestras are becoming more versatile to different repertoire. Yeah. And, you know, it's not like the Vienna Philharmonic only plays Bruckner and Schubert now. They play everything. Mm. And um, it's the same thing for the New York Philharmonic. I think it's good that an orchestra attempts to play in the style of Debussy or, or Foray and then, you know, the next week Bruckner or the next week uh, Tom Addis, you know. Yeah. I think that's great. That's a good thing. But it is a shame with the, with the let's say the cross fertilization or the or the air, airplane you know yes. the invention of the <laughs> just commuting on an airplane and just everyone's kind of but and also cultures you know it's not just Viennese people in the Vienna Philharmonic anymore it's no. not just mm. you know in my orchestra in Valencia it's not just Spanish people it's you know and I think there's a beautiful there's something beautiful about that because it's the future yeah. Um, yeah. But I do believe in cultivating a sound and it's something that I find really interesting. And, and, you know, that, that when an orchestra plays Mozart, they really have an identity and they have their way of, that's the thing. It's like, I, I always have this conversation about the pluses and minuses of a music director. Mm. And there are a lot of things I don't like about having one conductor be the face of the institution. There, there are a lot of things I think it's something of the past, but then but what a music director can do is this kind of housekeeping I mentioned or gardening, you know, pulling yeah. the weeds in the garden or maintaining the beauty of the garden, but also, you know, fertilizing the soil and, and keeping things healthy. Um, this is something I love. And then you see over time, usually in about five years, four to five years, you start seeing that when guest conductors come, they, they say to you, oh, this orchestra is incredible. And the starting point is so high and, what they have to offer right in the beginning is, is incredible. And that it takes time, but it's so rewarding. I mm. mean, it's the most rewarding thing that I've done. Well, I agree. I completely agree with what you've just said. Totally. I'm just going to linger very briefly on this point about orchestral sound. And I, whilst you were talking, I thought, and I'm going to use your garden analogy now, it's the fact that whilst the music director is, you know, laying out the pattern where the borders are, where the paths are, doing the mowing of the lawn, getting it, making the garden spick and span. What makes some gardens, i.e. the orchestra, uh, unique is that the fact that they have one particular tree sitting in the corner, mm. you know, and, and, and this is the star player or, a, or a star section, or, you know, if you go back to my point about Chicago, you know, you knew it was Adolf Herseth playing first trumpet. If you went, you went to the, the LSO in the mid seventies onwards, you knew it was Morris Murphy playing first trumpet, or you knew it was a certain oboist or a certain flautist. I wonder whether, you know, as somebody who's never been a music director, I wonder whether that, you know, when you, you get to a place like that and you see you've got a star player, you know, they, they must stay as they are. You know, your tree in the corner that nobody else has got in their garden uh, is something that you should be proud of. And, and I wonder whether orchestral musicians are encouraged to become those trees in the corner that nobody else has got, to be the voice that, that, that you know, you, you don't hear. The thing, I, it, I'm talk, really talking about the sort of, 
blanding. Bland is a horrible word, but you know what I mean. The sort of gener- making a general sound rather than just letting somebody be a huge personality. I don't know. I'm just checking it out there as a conversation point. Yeah, I mean, I like huge personalities. I find them fascinating, and 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 there's. I think you should celebrate when you've got someone extraordinary. It's like yeah. a great football club or a great yeah. soccer club. You know, when you've got a star, use a show, use the star. Yeah. Um, yeah. And but you but then but then as a coach, as a conductor, how do you get them to play well with others? And I mm. think that's something a lot, very psychological, but also in simple rehearsal tactics, you can get it to work. But yeah, I believe in this. I mean, in Scandinavia or Norway, where I live now, they they where I consider my home in Norway, they have this word Jantaloven, which is like. You're no better than anyone else. We're all going to be equal. Yes. yes yeah. Chill out. Chill out with your talent. Just fit in. You know, do the do your job and fit in. I don't believe in this. I don't. I I think that when you do have, let's say, star quality or your sound is just so beautiful, you should be celebrated. The, the orchestra should celebrate you in those specific moments. But like I said before, how do they play with others? You know, they have to play well with others. Otherwise, they have no business being in an orchestra. Mm. So yeah, when you mentioned this gorgeous garden and and it's suddenly there's a palm tree in the corner and yeah celebrate <laughs> that palm tree keep it healthy but make sure it's not killing the plants around it mm. well it, it it reminds me of a time uh when i first got to know i still consider him a friend and we occasionally message each other uh the england cricket coach andy flower and it, and it was during the time when he was the england cricket coach and england were number one in the world and he wanted to know how conductors dealt with musicians and how you know, it was about management and management and managing and we had lunch together and he asked me the question, you know, how does a conductor deal with maverick players? And I said, well, ma- the word maverick might mean a different thing to you than it does to me. But basically, if they are somebody who 99% of the time makes the concert pop, come alive, can do something that makes the audience cry or laugh, well, yeah. then I, le- I give them their head. If that means yeah. that one percent of the time they do something that wrecks a concert, well then, okay, fine. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm happy with the other ninety nine percent of the time. You know, and and exactly. you can see him formulating all of this. And, and and I cheekily said, "Well, you can't have any maverick players," um, which he, he 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 told me where to go in no uncertain terms because I knew I knew exactly who the two maverick players he was talking exactly. about were. Yeah, but yeah. he wanted to try and get the best out of them, and and that is our job, isn't it? Is you know, you've got these yeah. star players. How do you? keep them as stars but integrate or build the orchestra and the team around them um it's so important exactly phase three we've been in the u.s we've (laughs) been in europe the two jobs that um you just started in 21 as music director and i'm going to pronounce this wrong uh maybe i ought to get you to pronounce it the palau de les arts rhina sofia in valencia Yep, very close. <laughs> good, yeah. good. Uh, and then yeah. in, tw- in 23, you start as music director of the Comische Oper Berlin or the Comic Opera. Yeah. So opera, yeah. and you'll be, you know, basically music director in two opera houses at the same time. My question here is, is about time. Um, how much time will that take up of a year for you? It's not just the, the the run of a new production. It's also, you know, as a music director, you're going to be in bureaucratic meetings and well, production meetings yes. or whatever else. Yeah. And if you tack on your job as principal guest with Trondheim, how much time will that give you to go and guest elsewhere, meet new orchestras? Are you interested in, you know, in carrying on doing that? Maybe it's only one a year. What, how do you envisage your time being divided? Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, my, my whole life leading up to this point, I've always loved opera. Opera is something that I feel the most happy doing. Yeah. Um, one of the main reasons is, People, the public's not looking at me, and I love that actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that I'm part of this much bigger picture that I am supporting all these people and helping all these singers on stage. I'm fascinated by singers and directors, and yeah, and of course, the orchestra and these composers. So, I've always wanted to do more opera. I've been lucky to be at the Metropolitan Opera, at Munich Opera, Vienna State Opera, Zurich, these amazing houses. Um, and I've always wanted one of my own. I didn't mm-hmm. never. The plan was never to have two. Um, <laughs> the, the, the kind of way it happened was I met Valencia and I fell in love with the orchestra. It, it's this extraordinary orchestra that Lauren Mazel formed, you know, oh. um, almost two decades ago. Um, just a top-notch superstar orchestra players. And then Zubin Mehta came every year to do the Ring Cycle and, you know, Zalome and, and uh, 
and Lauren did many operas and concerts there. So this is kind of like a high octane orchestra. It still is. Right. Um, and I'm really proud of what they're doing and, and what we're doing. We're going to be doing Botsik in the spring and some concerts. But anyway, I fell in love with them. Then what happened, I met the Komisha Opa and it was a kind of unexpected love affair. I had no plans on, you know, that this would be a potential, even a potential job for me. I just thought, well, why not meet them? Because I love the Berlin orchestras. I love all of them. Um, and then it was this love affair. And then I, I said, okay, I can't take the two at the same time. If we delay the announcement of Komisha, yeah. we can do both together. Because in Valencia, it's, it's two productions a year. Mm. And grandiose productions like Wozzeck or Tristan or Boheme or whatever. And in, in Komisha, we get to really push the boundaries of the repertoire and do crazy things and crazy concerts and, and kind of break down the format as we know it and put it back together in a very different way, which mm. I think is the future. So, but, but back to your question, how are you going to balance this? For me, the, the biggest problem about my life as a conductor was my uh, was how much I miss my family, mm. my kids. These positions allow me to be in, to have two musical islands, um, Valencia and Berlin, and then having a connection to Norway, which is my wife's homeland and also mm. Trondheim, which I, I adore that orchestra. And that was some, that was an orchestra I met in the pandemic and COVID yeah. where Again, I didn't expect to meet them. And I just, I fell in love with how kind they are and how musical they are and the nature around Trondheim. So I'm kind of thinking about my life differently. I'm not so interested in having debuts every year. Yeah. Um, there are only a handful of orchestras I haven't conducted that I want to. And there's only a handful of orchestras that I, that I could potentially keep a relationship with mm -hmm. in this mm -hmm. schedule. So, you know, the idea of, you know, um, run globe trotting. Um, mm. It's getting old very quickly to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm 42 now, and when I was 22, it was very exciting. And now I, I just think I have a free day in this beautiful city, and my, I, and my kids are in school across yeah. the ocean, and I don't get to pick them up and have dinner with them and and play with them. So my priorities have changed big time and the idea of developing an opera house and being there like you said these production meetings auditions i love it because i feel a part of something much bigger and that when i leave it'll be a better institution or more versatile institution so yeah i love this challenge and it's it's a different set of priorities and i do want to keep going occasionally to new york philharmonic or Bavarian radio or you know one day the berlin philharmonic but it's just i my my priorities are a lot different right now. Well, and as somebody whose children are now grown up, but you know, I I I agree with you to have those as you call them islands. Um, you know, your missus is not going to be saying, "Where are you now?" You know, she'll know. Hey, right. you know <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. That that as you said when you when you're young. I mean, I was I was playing then, so I didn't do it. You know, my conducting career didn't start until I was thirty five. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, and so you know, I'm still in that phase where I, you know, I don't mind jetting off for three or four weeks, but eventually I want to come home. But yeah, if you've got a young family, it makes total sense um, yeah. just to, to have those bases. And you know, Oslo's not that far from either of those places. It's you know, they're quite no, short. No, Oslo. Flights. I mean, very, yeah. very close to Berlin, and um, it's it's a short flight away. And yeah, we're gonna kind of have two homes in uh, in Oslo and Berlin, physical homes. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it'll be great. That'll be starting in 23. There's an 11th question, as I'm, I'm sure you know, about school preparation. Um, and even though you know you've just said it with Komisha Opera, you're going to be doing newer operas, maybe brand new operas with the ink still drying. How do you learn a new score? Uh, do you sit at the piano? Uh, I'm sure you don't sit at your bassoon. Um, basically, do you sit at the <laughs> piano? Do you start from big to small or from page one to the end? And again, for the geeks, are you a scribbler inner? Are you a marker upper? Uh, red, blue, and black highlighters, or are you one who prefers to not write very much in at all? Uh, and I'm sure it differs from symphony to opera as well. But how do you yeah. how do you learn a score? 
Well, I think the first thing you do is you listen objectively. You you get a recording or you go to a performance if you're lucky enough. Yeah. You go to a live performance. You sit, you listen without the score. I think that's really the most important thing first. Mm. Um, you experience it as an audience member experiences a symphony or a piece of music or an opera for the first time. You walk away from that, then you get your hands on a score. And then, then for me, listening to recordings over and over again is very dangerous mm. uh, because then you subconsciously start taking in information that you might not come up with yourself or temp mm. tempos, for example. I mean, we're all human. We start getting used to certain things. Um, and I found that in my early years of conducting, when I had a, fam a favorite Carlos Kleiber recording, a favorite, you know, um, Bruckner Symphony recording, you, you, you stop thinking mm. on your own. So, so for me, it's great to listen maybe once with a, re with a recording just to get your head around it. Or if it's a modern piece that has no recordings, that's when the piano comes in very handy that you could just bang out harmonies and say, oh, I'm expecting to hear this chord there. Oh, wow, what is this? I don't think I can even label this as a chord, but I know to listen for these dissonance in the bass. And, you know, conducting is all about expecting to hearing, hear something. And, mm. and then if you don't hear that something, you, you fix it or you, you deal with it until it comes the way you envision it or the composer envisioned it. Um, but so for me, marking up a score um, with certain types of music is essential mm. um, to help the memorization process or the, the internalization process. I'm not, you don't have to memorize. I mean, I feel I've had the best performances in my life when I have memorized something because I have more eye contact yes. with the players. Right. I find when I have the score in front of me, I tend to look at it too much. Um, Operatically, I think you should always have a score, even if you have it memorized, because you'd never know what the heck can happen <laughs> in an opera no. production. I mean, no. really. And so I believe in marking to your you. I don't believe in road mapping with colors only because then you're dependent on those colors mm. and you're dependent on the OK, blue means this. And I and it. this is just my opinion. My, Larry marked up everything. and He was my teacher in school he was very much into marking every single harmony and i believe when you write something down it helps the process yes. of, of you internally so i very much like that but i love conducting from clean scores mm. in the in the moment uh, in the heat of the moment of the performance so i have my study scores which are tiny or mm. now i'm really getting to love the ipad which i never i never loved before my wife plays from the ipad all the time as a violinist in the Norwegian Chamber Orchestra, they all use iPads. For me, it's terrifying, the idea of using it in performance. However, yeah. you could annotate things in very small, you blow things up, write it, and, and you can reference things, you can get on the internet quickly. And so I find it fascinating now. But when I'm conducting Don Giovanni at the Opera House or uh, Eugene Onegin or a Strauss tone poem, I really don't want to see colors in my face. Um, uh, unless I need it, unless, yeah. unless I'm doing a modern piece and there's meter changes every bar and I need to mark, you know, two plus two plus three. And but that helps. Um, but so I'm a, I, I would say that I'm a scribbler, but then I erase. <laughs> yeah. So I have two very different people. I have the, the, the student and the performer. Mm. And I, and that's just my personal opinion. Everyone's different. And I know, I know people that never write a single thing in a score. I know people that there are more colors in their score than, you know, rainbow. It's just um, everyone's different and, and everyone needs different things in the heat of the moment of being up there with, with the, with the orchestra. I think it was Metropolis, the, the, the music director of the New York Philharmonic that said, you know, they said, well, why don't you use a score? And he said, <laughs> He said he made a reference to like training a lion. If I'm going to go in the lion's den, I'm not going to bring a manual of how to train the lion. And the, <laughs> That's right. Good. You know, yeah. And so I think there are pluses and minuses. And, you know, Casals, he was a famous one, right? Why do you, why do you use music when you play the Bach cello suites? Because I can read music, you know? Mm, yeah, yeah. And so I think they're, it, it's to each, to each zone. And um, I just know the, the, the student and, the performer are two very different people in my world, my well, life. Well, I think it's over the over now over a hundred episodes. 
I think the marker uppers are now winning ahead of the people who don't mark up. But the, the overriding point has been from start to finish is that you do whatever you need to do to get that music into your head and to be of a help if you're going to use a score in performance in the performance and not have your head buried in it. You know, and some people use the marking up as you and I do as a way of internalizing things. You know, I remember what's coming over the page because I remember writing it in, you know, little yep. things like that. Um, yeah. But we're all doing, we all do different things. I'm going to flag up one thing you said right at the beginning about about listening to recordings. And it reminds me of something that Alice Farnham said a few episodes ago about listening to opera recordings and because you're, you know, mm -hmm. two opera houses. She says that she'd rather go to a performance or watch an actual production on YouTube than listen to a studio-made recording. Because, That's interesting. Because she feels that in a studio recording, the excessive tempos, i.e. the fastest you could ever sing it, can be achieved, or the slowest you could ever sing it can be achieved because they, you know that you've got the rest of the day off to recover. Whereas in a, in a performance, if you go for that incredibly slow uh, tempo in the performance, you might have to sing in the next three yeah. years, uh, next <laughs> that's you know, great, 20, 20 seconds. That's, yeah. that's a really great point. And I, and I completely, I just had an interview about this famous Carlos Kleiber recording of Tristan yes, with, yes. With, in, in Dresden with Margaret yeah. Price and Colo. The, the problem with that recording is it could never exist on the stage of an opera house mm. in real time. Yeah. Just because of what you said and what she said, it, it, Margaret Price couldn't carry over that orchestra on the stage. And, they, and you would have killed the singers at those tempi. And yeah, yeah they're ideal. And, but there's something beautiful about that recording because it could only exist as a recording. Yes. So, I mean, yeah, I, I love what you said. It's, it's completely true. And that's a really good point. Are you fascinated by conductors and conducting? And would you like to learn a lot more about what we do and how we do it? Well, you can find out all sorts of secrets, tips, opinions, and much more on my Patreon page. You can hear over 17 hours of interviews with musicians, composers, soloists and managers and hear their thoughts on conducting and conductors. You can listen to 17 bonus mini-episodes that accompany this podcast. You can read articles I've written on conducting and conductors and you can even have conducting lessons from myself. All of this is available at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. And from just £5 a month, which is less than a pint of beer in most cities worldwide, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, James Gaffigan. James, it's 10 questions time. Um, the point of the podcast that every conductor either looks forward to or dreads. Let's find out which one you are. <laughs> And I always start with, what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Okay, the sound, uh, the sound I love most is hearing my kids laugh. Hmm. Yeah. The sound I hate most, um, I would say city noise, beep honking horns and just excessive city construction noise, I would yeah. say, even above honking horns, yeah. the, the, the sound of construction. And how old are your children? Are they the, the, the lovely giggly age? Yeah, well, some are. So yeah. I have a 10, 10, 7, and 3 and a half. Well, the good news for you is that mine are 22 and soon to be 19. And even now, I still hear them, the two of them giggling away at oh, the, the, the age they're yeah. at. You know, it's still wonderful. So, yeah, it doesn't get, it doesn't disappear. It's, it stays. Nice. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? If I had my choice away from music, it would be either tasting different wines with someone who knows what they're talking about, a winemaker, um, mm. or yeah, being in wine country and taking a tour of the, of the property and learning about um, um, the process of making that particular varietal and, and learning about it. I just love, I love the idea of being in nature and being in these beautiful places and tasting what naturally comes from the earth. And, and I just, I love wine. I don't know enough about Spanish wine or Spanish winemaking regions. Is Valencia near a good winemaking region? No, it's not near a famous wine region, but uh, but there are interesting wines coming um, from yeah. from this particular region. Of course, everyone knows Rioja and and these big tempranillos and things yeah. like that. But um, but I I just enjoy. I wouldn't say 
in Valencia, I probably wouldn't go wine tasting. But if I was working in Paris, I had 24 hours or if I was working in Burgundy or something, yeah, that would <laughs> yeah. be a dream. Or, 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 or San Francisco, for that matter. I would just go over the bridge and go to Russian River Valley and, mm. and taste some good wine. Well, it's, it's good for me because it means I'm now looking forward to your answer to question 10, um, which is good. <laughs> question four, uh, and it's about favorite c- conductors of yesteryear. Who would they be? You can have more than one, as many as you like. Okay. Um, when looking to the past, it's for me, I have different categories for different composers, but I yeah, would say, yeah. of course, the fantasy of Kleiber, I'm sure that comes up with everyone. I love that he he was a storyteller, even with pieces that had no storyline. And I, yeah. I love, he woke up the imagination in, in the most bitter musician, <laughs> the bitter <laughs> orchestral musician. He woke them up. And I just, I love that. Um, Bernstein, completely contagious rhythm and brilliant mind and brilliant mm. composer um i loved many things about karyan too i know these are three very famous names but karyan people all know the image this beautiful maestro looking person but that's not the thing that interested me what what interested me was his knowledge of sound and mm. he up, upholstered sound beautiful sound that was always the priority for him. And I, I really admire that very much. Even listening back to these recordings that were made in one reading with the Berlin Philharmonic and him, mm. it's just all about legato and sound. And I'm just, I'm a huge admirer. Yeah, isn't that one of the very earliest CDs ever made or released was the, the famous uh, Alpine Symphony with the picture of the Matterhorn oh. on the front cover. I've oh, got a feeling that was done in one go. Uh, because there are, there are trumpet splits on there, so they never they never oh, went yeah. back and covered them. But no, the, as you said, the sound is unbelievable, yeah. just amazing. Yeah. Well, let's see. Uh, question five is a, a contentious question for some conductors. Some people don't mind answering it at all. One in particular refused to answer with no given reason whatsoever. Uh, so let's see. Who do you <laughs> consider to be your favorite current conductors or conductor? Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I have a lot of colleagues that I admire. I mean, I can, yeah. I can give you a big list, but the ones that come to mind, I admire Franz Belzamos because I think he's misunderstood by many, mm. and I think what he has to offer, especially in the world of Bruckner, Strauss, Schubert, is on a on a different level. Um, I think I could say the same about Tillemann, completely opposite in some respects, but there's no doubt that this man knows what he's talking about and knows what he's doing. And it's beautiful. The, the end result is beautiful. And then I'm more closer to my age. I, I respect um, two come to mind. Kirill Petrenko, the music director of uh, Berlin Philharmonic. For me, he's only cares about music. There's mm. no other bullshit and no other just drama. It's just about music. And the rehearsals, yeah, they could bother some people because they say he's too nitpicky. But in the end, it's not about him. It's about the composer. And for mm. me, that's the most important thing. And I love this, uh, this uh, Togan Sokiev, mm. who I think is at Bolshoi now. He's one of the most natural conductors, so musical, breathes so well with the orchestra. The orchestra trusts him. And yeah, the, these people come to mind. Great. Of the living ones. Great choices. It's, it's funny going back, covering both of those your answers to both of those questions is the fact that talking about Petrenko, about you know, it seems to be only about the music. He's not interested at all, seemingly, in any of the PR stuff, you know, the, no. the, the stage photographs, you know. Whereas well, you he doesn't back, want to do it. No. Yeah, he doesn't uh, want to do it. Whereas you go blame, back to Carrion, you know, pictures of him flying jets and sailing yachts and all of that sort of stuff. It's, as you said, it, it can taint what's basically a wonderful musical legacy because of all the other things that were hung on the coat peg, whether he hung them there or somebody else hung them there for him. It was a combination. And I think yeah. like everyone, and, but the problem is, like you said, I would say half of all my brilliant colleagues think Karyan is just this pretty guy with gray, perfect hair. And, you yeah. know, they didn't, they didn't realize what he actually did that he would, you know, conduct a ring cycle without the score and call lighting cues at the same time with a headset. I mean, yeah. just <laughs> unreal. Yeah, staggering, isn't it? What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? 
well, I have many different um, experiences that were hard for different reasons. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think uh, for me, Shostakovich Symphony Number no. Eight, oh. huge, oh, yeah. painful, yeah. painful. And I did it with the Chicago Symphony, and I don't think I ever want to do it again. And it went well. I mean, mm. I heard the recording recently because they, they broadcasted it and they they sent it to me, and I scanned mm. through it, and it was just an amazing experience. But it was a dark time also privately something had happened very kind of traumatic uh and i was conducting the symphony with the chicago symphony and it's just it's the thing about shostakovich's music it's too real it's mm. too there's nothing like prokofiev has distanced himself from the music somehow whereas shostakovich is just brutally real and heartbreaking and mm. yeah it, that was that was tough um on a different way, doing the Grand Macabre of Ligeti <laughs> was really difficult with Netherlands Radio, but they were so, they're so good at modern music and the, the singers we hired were amazing. But putting this together and getting your priorities straight, because it's nothing is going to be perfect, you know, mm. and the amount of information on the page and the, the, the thickness of the score and how crazy it could be at times. Um, just organizing that and let's say letting go emotionally yeah. was difficult. <laughs> yeah. Like normally you learn a Bruckner symphony and then you, you fly. But in this case, oh, there's no relaxing, not, mm. not a single moment. And then there's some, I would say, certain experiences, you know, accompanying certain singers, no matter mm. how famous or amazing <laughs> they are. They have some interesting choices of Rubati, and um, <laughs> this this uh, this takes years off my life. And yeah. at the same time, it's rewarding. But you you sometimes walk up as, walk out of the pit and say, "Never again." Yeah, I'm not yeah. going to work with this person. And then you find yourself working with them. <laughs> but you know, I so I think those are the the things that come to mind. I would say now learning Vozik mm. is Vozik is the most complex score. I've ever needed to learn and and just because it's a masterpiece and yeah. there's no there's no doubt in my mind that it's a masterpiece and the, the more you study the more you're shocked by the genius of this man of Albenberg it's a, it's a, it's on a different level and the problem is it's a language that doesn't come naturally no. um, I would say theatrically the piece works so well uh, uh, the even if you don't like that particular type of music, an audience member will walk away moved by this production and by this music because Berg of all the, of Schoenberg and Webern, of course, is the most, let's say, audience friendly. Yes. Um, but as soon as you start digging deeper, I, I find the work of Berg and Sibelius to be shockingly radical and just extraordinary. And I just, yeah. the more you dig, the more you, you are amazed well i know Votzek has come up in the past as the answer to this question i think le grand macabre mm. has come up as the answer to this question um to which i always say well imagine singing it and conducting it at the same time which is what barbara hannigan <laughs> does you know um you yeah. know we take two hats off in her general direction for doing that um so she's extraordinary yeah uh gave jay i think may have come up before but i agree with you i've conducted it once i did it with the buenos aires philharmonic and i was wow. shattered afterwards absolutely shattered by yeah. it by the experience i'd also been warned by somebody not to do the eighth symphony because the audience would hate it well at the end we had a standing mm. ovation but it, it was yeah. one of those ovations that built and built and built it wasn't instant because of the way that symphony ends you know you could feel yeah. people assessing it and then thinking actually yeah i am going to stand and clap as well um yeah yeah and it's staggering and um, but the, well, the one that made me laugh is you know catching water which basically describes trying to accompany something singers or even pianists <laughs> or catching water yeah. Yeah, it's like to catch oh, up. Lord. Or, or the other one I love, I, I believe uh, I must uh, credit Norman Del Mar, the, the English conductor, uh, he uh, for this sentence. Um, it's you know, it's like taking a jellyfish for a walk on a piece of elastic. He used to say about <laughs> accompanying some people. Oh, I love that. Yeah, and, and it, it's absolutely true. You're right. You, you think where did that come from? And you know, I've come off stage yeah. before with my, with the CBSO, and, and friends have said to me, "Oh, well caught," or others have said, "You yeah, would." never going to catch that were you I was like, no I wasn't there <laughs> well the yeah. great the great thing about the opera world is you have a team down there with the orchestra and they're yeah. all with you and yes we yeah. we have inside jokes about it you know we yeah. we we make the impossible possible you know yeah. the musicians are 
I was just at Paris Opera and they're, they're extraordinary. And this, we, we had three different tenors mm. um, for one production and wow. every night was surprises. And, you know, the, but the orchestra was on their toes. I mean, and, and we just had, it was fun. It becomes like a, like sport, mm. you know, yeah. music and sport together. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? It used to be, I used to be very superstitious and I would have something that I would always need to have with me until I didn't have it one night. (laughs) (laughs) And then I, and then I decided this is absurd. So I stopped, I stopped with the whole ritualistic, I still do things in threes and breathe and pace a lot before, I still Mm. am a nervous wreck before every performance, but I don't have any single thing or, or uh, that wishes me good luck or anything. But I find now the thing that I need to take with me on every trip traveling to go conduct is a, a book. Yeah. Because it takes me away yeah. uh, from, from what I'm doing in that moment. So for me, a good novel or a good, um, whatever it may be at the time, it's usually a novel. It's usually mm-hmm. fiction. But something that's just going to completely take me away and Mm -hmm. and because i think we all need to be taken away from our our work and what what we do occasionally it it helps Mm. and 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 even though you know going back into the main interview you we were talking about you wanting to basically live in oslo conducting trondheim berlin and valencia which means you're going to have friends in all of those places but you you, we must never expect those friends to invite us which means we end up going for our dinner for one the dinner for one and a book and you know that's the way around it is you know it's far less lonely in existence uh and as you said you need to be taken away you need to you know you still need to get on a plane and you need some sort of stimulation um so yeah. yeah, wonderful answer. Probably one of the most common answers, but it's still a wonderful answer. I haven't banned it yet. <laughs> I won't. I probably won't. Next one, uh, and this can be real or fantasy, whatever you want to do. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? The amount of travel. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and it, I mean, is, it... is that down to more down to time away from the family, or also down to saving the planet? I think it's everything. I mean, I, we're not built to be, tra- I mean, we're not built to be in New York City one day and Paris the next day. Mm. And we do it all the time because it's mm. possible now. And it's not good for our bodies. It's not good for our minds. It's not good for the planet. It's not the way, you know, we're, we're, we should have people and friends and family that we're surrounded by all the time mm. and, or tribe or a group of people. And, and we just start, it starts, uh, we lose, we lose touch with reality because we're all traveling so much. And that's what I would change about my profession. Um, and I would say if I, if I had to have two answers, it would be that. Yeah. And then the other one would be the whole myth, the whole ridiculous myth about being a maestro or conductor. It's so absurd. And it's just, <laughs> we're normal people and we're, we're musicians. The only weird thing is we don't make sound. Mm. Yeah. I agree. Uh, in in the episode one, in the taster episode, I have a feeling my answer to the sound I don't, uh, the noise I hate is somebody calling me maestro. I can't remember whether it was the answer to that oh. question or this question. I hate the word. I know that it's it's almost taught people in some yeah. places, some countries, to always call oh, yeah. them up to maestro. And what made it worse was that somebody, some wag, decided to call me Mike-stro in Birmingham uh, 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 for a family ah! concert. Uh, and, and that drove me, well, I, uh, yeah, as you can well imagine. Uh, so, no, it, yeah. it, gives me ch- it gives me chills. But the, fa- the sad part is they think they're being nice and yes, they, they do, think yeah. they're being respectful. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's really sweet. But at the same time, I get, I get like, oh, I get a chill in my spine because yeah. it's so silly and like and if i ever say yes i mean take a gun and shoot (laughs) absolutely yeah so true yeah (laughs) well the other reason why in the uk if if somebody from the orchestra calls you maestro i think nice they don't know your name well firstly there that they don't know your name because they haven't looked at the schedule and have no idea who's conducting but secondly it's normally because they're gently and mildly taking the piss out of you um (laughs) i don't think anybody's sincerely called um, anybody maestro in the uk uh, ever so there we go um number nine and again real or fantasy what profession other than your own would you like to attempt i mean it's something i have done before Mm. um 
it, it, it was, I was a chef in a restaurant. I'm oh, not cool. the head chef, but yeah. And I worked in the restaurant industry to make money when I was a student in, in NEC mm. in Boston and also in the summers and actually one summer at Aspen. And I, I love, I love it. I mean, the restaurant industry is tough because it's, it's a, you're going to lose money. Um, the people, a lot of the people are stressed and on drugs and that are working in their restaurant business. But, you know, I love being in the kitchen and I felt I, I made an amazing connection with the, with the other cooks um, and they're extraordinary people and mostly Mexican immigrants, mm. um, just extraordinary and so talented and just such a sense of family, you know? So I love, I love working in the restaurant industry and it is tough, but it's something that if I had a friend with a lot of money that wanted to shell out the money to, to buy a restaurant, I would, I would love to be part of it. I mean, if I wasn't a musician. Well, if somebody's going to answer question nine with uh, a chef and question three with going on a wine tasting, it means, <laughs> it means question 10. I'm looking forward to the answer. And question 10 is, if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Oh, this is really hard. I have, I have two. I have, I have, I have two again. But the, the, the well, goat, get the, both. The, Let's have both. Oh, all you right. Know. Yeah. The yeah. thing. The first instinct is a great Neapolitan pizza mm. with 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 my with my family and a, a great super Tuscan wine, yeah. uh, just a big red wine. And then the other, if I was on the other side of the planet, <laughs> I would say. A Kyoto, like a, a Japanese um, multi-course omakase with great sake, and then you know, sit in the bathtub, soak, and let the world end. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant answers. Um, I'm not sure anybody's given me two separate meals before, both of which I'll happily, happily partake in. <laughs> and happy I am. Uh, what a wonderful way to spend an hour. Thank you, James. You're so kind. Thank you very much. And thank you for doing this. With, and I think it's, it's so great. And it's so fun people get to listen to this. It's, uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Hope to see you soon. All the best. Take care. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with a Colombian conductor who is at the start of her career, but is already making quite a name for herself. She is conducting fellow at the Philadelphia Orchestra and the Seattle Symphony Orchestra, as well as being the Schulte Conducting Apprentice at the Chicago Symphony under the guidance of Ricardo Muti. But until then, bye-bye.